said, love me, baby, said that you were true. But I know that you're all my life. Don't believe you, you're rambling, you're gambling. Lord knows we've been. I can spend it on your breath of whiskey and sin. Hello, welcome to Rising with the Tide. I'm Skander, and as you may be hearing from the utter silence of uh, the English accent missing, Jamie's not with us. Unfortunately, uh, today is, uh, I think, our first episode where I'll be uh, solo, uh, soloing this uh, this episode. And uh, but I'm excited. I mean, you know, some people uh, say that you know it should be a one-man show, and I think I agree with that. <laughs> no, no, of course I, I'm. Uh, I, we're deeply sorry to not have Jamie today, but he's been taken by an emergency. He'll be back on the next episode, but uh, I'm sure we'll get through this with no problem. Uh, and I'm super excited because today we have Nicholas Stump, who's the author of Remaking Appalachia, Eco-Socialism, Eco-Feminism and Law, a book that came out in 2021, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and yeah, Nicholas is here with us today to talk about the book, about uh, this beautiful region of Appalachia, and also about you know, what the uh, issues are around mining, around law, and uh, everything that uh, kind of appears in his book. Nicholas, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Uh, I'm so thrilled to be with you today. Um, and I uh, just wanted to add as a preliminary note um, that I am just speaking as an individual today, and of course not on behalf of any organization or uh, institution that I might be a part of. Uh, but again, I'm absolutely thrilled uh, to be with you. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, I, I, it is sometimes a little bit difficult to, I think, get the like time zones and stuff correct. Mm -hmm. uh, like we've had people on the show from who were joining us from India or from Australia. And <laughs> living yeah. Oslo, that can be a little bit difficult, but you know, <laughs> it's lovely to not have to miss out on the... Uh, on the knowledge and the wisdom of people like you who are just a little bit further than us around the world. I mean, I think it's, it's one of those benefits of uh, modern times, right? That we have this kind of uh, sharing um, web of, of people. Um, yeah, yes, absolutely. Uh, and here in the Eastern half of the States, it's an absolutely perfect time to be doing uh, an interview. Got some nice uh, morning sunlight streaming through the windows. So yep, very mm -hmm. pleasant setting. Yeah, I was saying, yeah, um, <clears throat> it's the second day, I think, of actual sunshine in Oslo, which mm -hmm. is very, very strange. I mean, yesterday, going through the city, um, I, I mean, already after class, we went and sat by the river, and you could just see these masses and masses of people, students mostly, who went out and sat in the green uh, spaces, you know, with a couple of beers or drinks or something, and and everybody seems to just be like ready for summer to finally be here. It's been a long winter, but, mm -hmm. uh, but we're all that, ready for it. Well, that sounds nice. I sort of wish I was there now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you, you know, you have an open invitation to come to Oslo anytime for sure. I just <laughs> wouldn't recommend the winter. Although maybe, I don't know, in West Virginia, maybe you might have a similar kind of harsh winter. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. not sure the, yeah, uh, we do. It, it can be a long and a cold, uh, a long and a cold winter. Um, although this one wasn't particularly bad, so mm. hey, benefits of climate change, am I right? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, about uh, Appalachia, maybe could you start by telling us a little bit about what the re region is like, um, also how to properly pronounce it? Because I remember we had this conversation a couple months ago, and I've already forgotten how to properly pronounce the place. 
but also about its culture and its people and maybe what the area feels like uh, and how those things have kind of evolved over the past decades because you're a longtime resident of the area. That's right. Yep. I am uh, originally from uh, West Virginia and I'm still located there now. Um, yeah, so Appalachia, it's a, you know, a wooded uh, rural part of the uh, eastern U.S. Um, it's a pretty massive region. Uh, the sort of formal mainstream definition of Appalachia has it actually spanning 13 states. So it starts uh, at the bottom of the country in um, Mississippi and Alabama. It just extends all the way up through the Appalachia Mountain Range to the southern part of uh, New York. So pretty big, uh, pretty big geographic region. Um, only one state uh, is within uh, the complete boundaries of Appalachia. Um, the other 12 are only, only partially uh, in these uh, specific boundaries. And that's actually West Virginia. Um, okay. So we're the only uh, fully uh, Appalachian state, you could say, uh, as it were. Um, but again, that's the formal mainstream definition of the region that's been put forth by the Federal Appalachian Regional Commission, or ARC. Uh, it's a very influ influential uh, definition of the region, um, but a lot of activists and scholars over the years have sort of challenged that. Um, they want to put forth different uh, sorts of, of uh, definitions that you know, reflect different um, political or, or cultural uh, viewpoints, but I always just tend to start with that ARC uh, definition again as it's um, as, as it's so uh, uh, influential. So um, from that that main definition of Appalachia, it tends to be further broken up into subregions. So there's Central Appalachia, um, and that's really the predominant uh, coal mining uh, region uh, of Appalachia. When when folks tend to talk about uh, the the Appalachian region, they they tend to mean just Central Appalachia. Um, and, then, and that covers parts of uh, four states, West Virginia, uh, Virginia, Kentucky, and Tennessee. Um, that's where, you know, from the late uh, 1800s and, and to the present, um, you've just really had an intensive uh, beginning uh, undermining, uh, underground mining industry and then to the present, uh, the surface uh, mining coal industry as well. But there's other regions that have also been impacted by the uh, fossil fuel industry, such as North Central Appalachia, um, which uh, includes Northern West Virginia, which is where uh, I'm in up through Pennsylvania and so forth. And that's where the, um, the oil and gas industry, particularly the natural gas industry for the last 20 years has really been uh, ascendant. And so when you hear folks talking about fracking in, in the US, it's, yeah. it's very often fracking in the uh, North Central uh, Appalachian region. So that's sort of uh, the, the geography and, and where sort of the main fossil fuel industries are located. Um, beyond that, going to the, you know, the other aspects of your question. So Appalachia is often discussed in the literature as an energy sacrifice zone or a uh, you know, natural resource uh, sacrifice zone within the US or peripheral type subordinated uh, region within the core. Uh, or mm -hmm. within the U.S., which of course is a, a so by, by that you mean like um, just I know that some of our listeners might not be super familiar with the word sacrifice zone. Uh, do you mean like an area of the country that is thought to be something like a sacrificial lamb in terms of its resources and you know natural uh, wealth, so that the other areas can kind of prosper in in that, quotation marks? That is exactly right. Okay. Yep. Uh, essentially, the, the sacrifice zone model uh, holds 
that certain regions and the people who live uh, within them are being sacrificed for some, you know, again, as you said, quote unquote, <laughs> greater uh, national good. Uh, yeah. So here it's the Appalachian uh, land um, and, and uh, landscape uh, that is being uh, destroyed by the fossil fuel industry uh, and the people uh, that are being, you know, directly uh, harmed through uh, the industry in terms of uh, you know, biophysical impacts, but also, you know, economically uh, damaged uh, by uh, the industry sort of indirectly um, right through you know, natural resource curse and, and those sorts of uh, social science-based models that have studied it, um, right? So it's the land and the people of Appalachia that are being sacrificed in order to get, to get the coal, to get the, the oil and gas in order to mm. keep uh, energy prices low. Um, it, it is the idea anyway, right? idea, yeah. the, the mainstream <laughs> in narrative. Yeah, in fact, it's, you know, um, we're being sacrificed in order to um, uh, maximize capital accumulation uh, among yeah. these uh, uh, fossil fuel, these various fossil fuel uh, industries. So, and again, it's um, specifically coal um, and, and oil and gas that have been the dominant um, uh, fossil fuel uh, regions and force in the region um, since the, in terms of uh, coal and the, and the oil industry, uh, generally since the late 1800s, all the way up into the all the way up until the present, but there's other extractive industries too as well, such as the timber industry, um, which have, have decimated uh, the region. Um, in my home state of Appalachia, um, essentially all of our uh, old growth forests were wholly uh, decimated wow. um, between the uh, late 1800s up until 1920 uh, is, is essentially wow. when, uh, when, when all the trees were. Uh, all the trees were uh, harvested by uh, by the industry. So there's other um, mm -hmm. harmful uh, industries that have that have been at, at work as well. Um, and then just one other thing, maybe I could add to some helpful background yeah. uh, for, for their listeners about Appalachia. Oftentimes, Appalachia is stereotyped as a backwards region, as a land that time forgot. Um, even as like a deviant type uh, population, right, which, which you often see in, in, in popular media. Um, and certainly these stereotypes uh, played into the, you know, Appalachia's Trump country uh, phenomenon mm -hmm. and, and uh, the 2016 election and thereafter. But there is a very rich and deep literature uh, that unpacks and unveils the fact that this whole stereotype of Appalachia as being backwards um, was explicitly developed um, and deployed by the industry in the late 1800s and, 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 and the early uh, 20th century um, as a way to other the Appalachian people or subordinate mm. the Appalachian people uh, in the mind of the broader US public too is the way some scholars have said, uh, talk about Appalachians as not being fully fledged human beings, oh right, rather than other population. <laughs> Why? From the industry's perspective, it's much easier to decimate the land and again yeah. to, to, to harm the citizenry. Um, again, there are multi-dimensional multi dimensions from biophysical to, to economic and cultural if they've convinced the rest of the nation that we're not, uh, in fact, yeah. fully fledged human beings. So to the extent that folks might have heard as, you know, of Appalachia as a, um, as a wholly uh, problematic region, again, that's 
centuries long cultural manipulation tactics on the part of industry. Mm -hmm. Why again, to in order for them to maximize uh, capital accumulation, which isn't to say that there's not problematic aspects of, of Appalachia, just like there's not problematic aspects of the rest of the U S in terms of, yeah. uh, you know, racism, xenophobia and all the rest that's certainly there. Um, but again, the fact that it has such an outsized presence and, uh, uh national and international media um, as a backwards region can be traced directly to uh, the industry trying to maximize profits. Yeah, that, that's quite sad to, to see a kind of conscious effort <clears throat> to do that. Um, mm -hmm. but it makes sense. I mean, yeah, I, I guess as uh, we'll probably get into capital accumulation often requires uh, an expansionary kind of frontier and to do that, you need to be able to kick people off their lands, to be able to, you know, yeah, like you said, sacrifice uh, zones and peoples and non-humans as well. And yeah, I guess it's easier to do that when the, when the general public doesn't really view them as anything less than uh, than just, I don't know, like you said, backwards people. I, that's not, personally, that's not a view that I've seen too much in international media because <clears throat> I guess, sorry, my throat is killing me these, today, so you oh, might no. hear a little bit of a cough. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yeah, no, I, I was just going to say that in the media that I've seen, I guess I haven't seen too much about Appalachia being um, it's kind of backward country that you said was a stereotype. Um, mm. But that may also just be because, you know, I guess not every part of the U.S. gets kind of broadcasted out as well. Um but, uh, but I can definitely relate it to some of the parts of, for example, Belgium, my own mm -hmm. country of, uh, you know, my kind of whole half of the country, the South as uh, being very much being portrayed as just farmers and coal miners who mm -hmm. all, you know, simultaneously uh, pay no taxes, but also take jobs, <laughs> hate immigrants, but are also all immigrants. And it's just like, all these confounding, strange statements about us. Um, but, um, but yeah, I'd like to maybe just before we get into the book and to the issues around Appalachia, maybe we could uh, just kind of talk about, you know, we don't have to go too much into detail, but I'm, I'm quite interested in how you came to be interested in these topics. Um, so again, we don't have to mention too much about this but just uh how you kind of came to pick up the topics of environment mostly is what i'm interested in well yeah that's a great question um yeah again so i'm from west virginia from the north central part of the state um, a small town and essentially the appalachian environment has always been on my mind uh as my small town was surrounded by uh, both underground mines and surface mines um mm -hmm. So I sort of uh, grew up around a scarred and, and uh, denuded landscape. And um, yeah, even you know, when I was very young, it struck me as uh, sort of horrific um, that that's you know, what, the, what the surface mining industry in particular has wrought on the landscape. Not least of all, because that's the juxtaposition between um, these scarred uh, surface uh, mines and then the, you know, the rest of the beautiful landscape that, mm -hmm. that is Appalachia, which it's probably another reason why it's internationally known is, is um, for yeah for its great natural um, for its great natural beauty. So I you know I grew up a, a around those mining sites um, and it disturbed me uh, from uh, from you know very young age. Um, and then aside 
aside from the um, the destruction of, of the uh, the environment around me, it was also the the human impacts of the um, mm-hmm. of the coal mining industry. One of the worst coal mining accidents, probably one of the worst industrial accidents, um, uh, or I should say, uh, disasters and not accidents, as I hold mm-hmm. the industry mm-hmm. accountable, um, occurred just outside of my hometown. Uh, my hometown's uh, Buchanan, West Virginia. And the disaster was the Sago mining incident, um, okay. which, which, which occurred uh, in, in the last several decades, um, killed a large number of, uh, of coal miners. Um, and so, you know, again, just uh, very you know, disturbing to live through that and smaller uh, mining incidents. Um, and, you know, and again, my, I'm from, uh, from West Virginia, my broader family is from West Virginia. Um, and so, you know, a lot of our uh, family members have been uh, killed or, or injured by the industry. So my um, maternal grandfather, for instance, died uh, in the West Virginia coal mines. Um, it was an underground mine and it was a, a, a roof fallen essentially that killed him. Um, so not unusual for folks who are, are from here to have, you know, specific yeah. family members who've been killed by the, you know, purposefully uh, negligent industry as well. And so it's both the human impacts and again the environmental uh, impacts that I were that I was around uh, growing up that really you know sort of uh, put me on a lifelong path towards uh, being keenly interested um, in and mm-hmm. uh, more transformative uh, change for the region. And that was the environmental part. The fact that my um, research draws on critical legal theory. Um, specifically critical legal theory informed by uh, socialism and Marxism uh, came later on uh, mm-hmm. after I um, you know, discovered the literature, discovered a lot of actually not just legal literature, but Appalachian studies, regional literature in the social mm-hmm. sciences and so forth that um, explicitly drew on um, those sorts of uh, radical discourses and, and related discourses that sort of allowed me to join the uh, ecological critique uh, with the, with the uh, you know, legal left uh, critique, and which brought me to the sort of synthesis that I, uh, that I, that I now use. Um, and the only other thing on that I should add is that Appalachia itself has a very uh, radical uh, labor tradition and also environmental mm-hmm. grassroots activism uh, tradition. The, the radical labor uh, tradition goes all the way back to late 1800s, um, early 20th century with the um, mining wars, as they're called, um, okay. based on uh, unionization efforts in the West Virginia coal fields and, uh, and other uh, coal fields. And they were very, uh, you know, the term uh, my more suggests very bloody uh, affairs, actually pitched battles in some instance of the wow. uh, miners against the industry and the US government, uh, which supported the industry. The, um, the largest battle that has occurred to date on US soil following the US Civil War was actually in West Virginia, called the Battle of Blair Mountain. Where, oh, heard um, that, yeah. yeah, where miners um, fought in a, in a pitch battle with you know, machine guns and, and rifles oh. against both the industry and the U.S. government that, of course, supported um, the, uh, the coal mining industry. And that's one of the only instances also where the United States government has dropped bombs on its own citizens from airplanes. Um, mm-hmm. So they, they, bomb the, they bomb the coal miners. Um, so, you know, I was aware of that radical uh, labor tradition uh, growing up, which, which itself had very strong Marxist strains. So that also set me on a, a course mm-hmm. towards, um, you know, socialist and Marxist influenced uh, yeah. uh, research agenda. And, and there's generally a strong union 
tradition among miners, right? Just in, in general in the US. Like I, <laughs> I always found that quite funny that um, uh, low, I see a lot of like Republicans in the US kind of uh, who are very anti-union uh, mm-hmm. tr- think that they can kind of show up to mines and, and things like that and and like speak against unions and then just see the utter like I don't know the utter disgust from these miners who are like you're not taking away my union what the hell are you talking about <laughs> precisely precisely yeah. yes um, yeah there's some kind of cognitive dissonance between them <laughs> yeah there there really is um paired with again you know explicit cultural uh manipulation tactics on the on the part of industry and complicit uh, lawmakers and policymakers, um, since they've really tried hard to, as you said, uh, exactly, to try and push the um, anti-union uh, uh, agenda with, with mm. coal miners and others. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of great, uh, great literature that's studied those cultural manipulation tactics, and you know specifically what they've what they've tried to do. Um, yeah. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, social engineering strong. Um, yes. <laughs> maybe we can focus a little bit on the like environmental impacts i guess of uh, uh and you will get to to a lot of the other things so i have so many questions but um but the environmental impacts of of the mining i think is one of the things i'm i'm keenly interested in and more precisely even something that kind of shows up time and time again throughout your book um uh, and your your work is is mountaintop removal right it seems to have to be quite omnipresent as one of the worst parts of this mining, because obviously, you know, surface mining in general seems to also have uh, some definite um, destructive capacity, but mountaintop removal seems to be like a level above that. Could you maybe tell us a bit about what MTR, as it's referred to, uh, kind of entails and maybe what the um, what the effects have been in terms of environment and, and also people, because I remember you in your book mentioning also that it does affect people as well. Absolutely. Yes. Mountaintop removal mining. And that is um, a type of mining that not just me and other Appalachian environmental researchers discuss, but essentially any uh, environmental legal researcher in the U.S. Legal Academy that's talking about some of the worst ill effects um, of any industry period in the U.S. tends to at least mention uh, mountaintop Mm -hmm. removal mining just because it is uh, just absolutely uh, horrendous for a whole uh, range of reasons um, that you've broached. So mountaintop removal mining, as the name suggests, entails industry essentially uh, chopping off the top of mountains um, in the Appalachian region uh, through explosives and then through um, heavy machinery, really mega uh, technologies that are required to, to help uh, essentially push off the top of the mountains in order to reach the coal seams uh, beneath. So essentially, again, uh, decapitating uh, mountains. And to date, um, over 500 mountains um, have been destroyed in Appalachia and over uh, 2000 miles of what we call ecologically crucial um, headwater streams also have been destroyed by mountaintop removal mining. Because when you blow off the top of a mountain, you have to put the mountain that you've blown up somewhere. somewhere. Yeah. Yes. And so they essentially push it off the, uh, the blasted mountain into the valleys, yeah. which completely covers the streams and um, which also ends up polluting uh, mm-hmm. the streams as well, which has. Well, both. Well, also just in terms of the actual word mountain, um, just so we can get kind of an idea of 
how big are these mountaintops that we're talking about? You know, um, are they like some, you know, dozens of kilometers or miles wide? I'm just wondering. I think, uh, yeah, in terms of like the, the exact height of the mountaintop that gets removed, I think hundreds of feet at least, although I can't recall the precise number off the top of my head. Um, so something in that range and the mm. very least is, is what gets, uh, again, blown up and then pushed off the mountain, um, mm. which just leaves the, which just leaves the remnant. Yeah. Um, it's just to be clear that like, we're not talking about a little hill here. It's like, that's uh, right. It's, it's a mountain, actual mountain top. That's right. And if you were to, you know, you can Google mountaintop removal mining Appalachia and see what it looks like. And it truly looks like if you've watched uh, Lord of the Rings, it looks like Mordor. Mm. It looks, oh my you God. know, yeah. It, yeah. It is, <laughs> it, you know, in the industry, again, they're very clever. They, they do not um, destroy mountains through mountaintop removal mining that are right next to highways, for instance. It's typically at least mm. a range over. Um, so, you know, this, this destruction is at least somewhat hidden um, from, from parts of the public, although not the public that lives in close proximity, uh, to mm -hmm. the mountaintop removal mining sites, um, which is also something that, that we can get into. Yeah. So that is mountaintop removal mining in terms of the, um, the, you know, environmental impacts that it causes. Again, it's, it's a type of surface mining, as you said. So it's, you know, extensive acreage that's devastated. Um, there, is essentially no way to restore mountaintop removal mining sites to any semblance of, of what they were before. Um, sometimes, you know, the mines are somewhat reclaimed, typically with like a um, one type of vegetation, sometimes not even a type of vegetation that is uh, native, is endemic, yeah, or native yeah. Uh, to the Appalachian region. Um, and, you know, the biodiversity is just, again, permanently removed. Um, there's been studies that say that mountaintop removal mining is much more similar to volcanic eruptions than to other types oh. of mining or to uh, timber extraction, and that yeah. the actual landscape is, is fractured, um, again, through the, uh, through the blasting and, and through the use of, of mega yeah. uh, technologies. So I do, do want to very quickly, actually, just if, if I may just read this quote from the study oh, sure. that you'd, you'd uh, mentioned. So this is from uh, uh, Deep Impact Effects of Mountaintop mm -hmm. Mining on Surface Topography um, by uh, Ross McGlynn and Bernhardt. <clears throat> and the, um, yeah, just the coherent, yeah. The physical effects from mountaintop mining are much more similar to volcanic eruptions where the entire landscape is fractured, deepened, and decoupled from prior landscape evolution trajectories, effectively resetting the clock on landscape and ecosystem co-evolution, which is like as harsh of a criticism as you can get. I mean, this is like literally saying that there's a, a potential point of no return from these uh, actions. That's exactly right. That's the best way to put it. Yep. Yeah, which is, um, I, you know, the 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 kind of like <laughs> the activist in me is obviously you know deeply upset to read that but then the kind of more academic in me uh it just thinks like how is this defensible you know and i guess that gets into the kind of idea of like uh in terms of the courts of law in terms of these companies themselves like the company executives who are actually making these decisions and maybe even the miners who are doing the blowing up I wonder, so this is kind of a dual question, sorry, <laughs> I'm laying two at a time, but like, how do people kind of, um, I guess, rationalize this 
pure utter destruction and and how does the court and environmental law come into all of this yes yeah, so great questions um and the idea of the you know the coal miners that are engaged in the practice is itself a, a fascinating question and issue um not least of all because it does not take many miners at all to engage in mountaintop removal mining because so much of it is dependent on mega technologies that were mm -hmm. specifically developed by the industry in order to create a smaller coal mining workforce. Um, because especially after the coal miners uh, were had success in unionizing, um, you know, the industry essentially wanted to get rid of, of as many uh, coal miners as possible because um, they didn't want to pay the higher wages. Um, so they developed these mega technologies in order to shed the coal mining workforce. And I forget the exact number that's involved in, in, in engaging in a um, mountaintop removal mining operation, but it's a very small number compared to the number of coal miners that were required in the 1800s and throughout the first half of the, of the 20th century. So in terms of how it's justified, um, you know, one way that it's been justified is actually returning to that sacrifice zone uh, model uh, and discourse. It's like, of course, you know, this is a somewhat is what the industry and allied uh, um, uh, lawmakers would say. Of course, it's a somewhat problematic practice and that there's some pollution and some, you know, human community impacts. Um, but the fact is we have to sacrifice this zone um, of the U.S. in order to have cheap energy because you don't want to pay more for your uh, energy. Uh, prices, do you, uh, you know, consumers? <laughs> and so, so that's the sort of messaging that they use. Right. So the cultural manipulation tactics, it's that, hey, this has been a, you know, prime form of productive labor and the part of Appalachian men uh, for over a hundred years. And we wouldn't want to get rid of essentially the only industry that um, is providing jobs to, to men specifically, uh, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so that's how within the region itself, um, they have been able to sort of uh, sell the broad public on, um, coal mining, uh, one being, you know, harmful to the landscape and to people, um, and two being, you know, specifically engineered as um, essentially the, for, you know, for much of Appalachia's uh, history from late 1800s until the present, one of the only industries period where, um, again, men in particular uh, could make a uh, can make a, a living wage. So frankly, especially in the U.S., uh, hasn't been that hard of a sell that Appalachia should be destroyed, um, you know, to keep energy prices low for the rest of the country. Wasn't until climate change um, really permeated the broad public um, mm -hmm. in the U.S. in the last couple of decades, the last decade in particular, that um, folks have more broadly turned on uh, coal mining in the region. That and the linkage of um, Appalachia and the coal mining industry with uh, Trump and, and other, um, other uh, you know, awful uh, social, uh, political and economic um, phenomenons in, in the U.S. that it was, um, that, you know, able to, um, to better oppose uh, the coal mining industry. But, it, you know, despite mm -hmm. the fact that folks have been talking about the end of coal in, in the U.S. And, and, and beyond for decades now, the coal Industry does persist here. <laughs> yeah, new permits are still being issued for mountaintop mm -hmm. removal mining sites. There was a great article in um, in Salon last year about, hey, you talk about the end of coal all you want, but these state and federal agencies are still handing out more permits, and it's still happening here. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, it has incredible has incredible um, momentum. Yeah, yeah, it, it's interesting that I don't know Appalachia just seems like a a very good example of the kind of wage system. 
<clears throat> coming in alongside capital accumulation mm-hmm. and the kind of psychology of it. Because, you know, I, I, for me, like Appalachia could be seen as one of the easier examples of a kind of self-sustaining society which is a bit more like small scale as I, I'm mm-hmm. guessing in those large swathes of land, there's maybe less people than in cities um, with tons of natural resources enough for hundreds of generations and more. And, you know, I guess it kind of falls prey instead of the subsistence or like, um, you know, wage, but kind of kept in check kind of production system it kind of falls prey to this idea of oh you need to work in this like coal mining sector because you need to have that wage come in um i find it quite interesting that these i don't know appalachia then seems to not be able to break free from that um but uh, i mean that's such a good point and there i mean there are robust um studies on that very topic uh in the appalachian literature um, both historic and, and contemporary studies, um, a lot of con- competing uh, viewpoints and what actually, you know, precisely happened in the 1700s and 1800s uh, in terms of industry um, coming into the Appalachian region. And as you said, uh, removing people from small scale farming, often subsistence farming that in some ways might've been you know, removed people... from the capitalist world system of the time. Right. Yeah. And then were brought... people doing that more before that? Cause I wonder what Appalachia was like before the mining. Yes. Uh, such a, yeah. Again, such a good question. I, I would say that there is some controversy um, in the literature about exactly what Appalachia looked like before the mining. Um, there's a great Marxist historian uh, Dunaway um, who essentially argues that from the first contact and the first, you know, um, settling on the part of the, the you know, the, the Euro colonial settlers in Appalachia, Appalachia was integrated into the uh, capitalist system of the time. Um, and that Appalachia, to, to, to quote Dunaway, has, was born capitalist um, with, with the settler, um, with, the, with the white settlers. And so, you know, Dunaway argues that capitalism um, was always uh, integrated to one extent or another um, from the period of, of, of settling and, and comprehensive colonial settling onwards. Other mm-hmm. other researchers um, have said, yes, you know, that's true, um, but it's not wholly true given all times and places in Appalachia and that there were folks engaged in subsistence, extensive subsistence mm-hmm. practices very much separated from uh, markets in the world capitalist system. Um, including not even owning the land, but squatting on land and, and mm-hmm. uh, using the land as a commons uh, along with, with other folks. Um, and clearly there is a tradition, um, as, as, as you were saying, of this uh, subsistence uh, farming and other uses uh, of the yeah. forest. Um, like an anti-capitalist and, tradition, mm-hmm. I guess. That's yeah. right. Yep. And, and today many folks on the left, me included, say, you know, obviously there is you know, settler colonialism, that all of that is uh, very problematic. We have to sort through that. But regardless, if we're talking about post-capitalist futures in Appalachia that are strongly ecologically sustainable, the fact that we're a rural wooded region, it's one of the most biodiverse regions in, in all of the Americas, um, we do have something of a tradition of subsistence, uh, uh, livelihoods and agrarianism. All of that can be drawn on, um, at least yeah. in part. In addition, with other uh, and these um, things are so important because mm-hmm. uh, you know we've we've talked about it on this show before. But stories and narratives are one of the driving forces, not just in everyday life, but especially in those moments when you know 
the action actually gets really difficult and and like you kind of look around and you don't see a kind of way out of the system sometimes those stories are all we need often we need more but sometimes they're an important part of what we need to find that pathway out of the status quo and so i know yeah i can definitely imagine that as an appalachian it must be extremely kind of satisfying and interesting and kind of um, a source of hope as well to see that there is this tradition and these stories and these narratives of uh, of an other. Yes, could could not agree more. And something that I um, argue in, in parts of the in parts of the book as well explicitly that yeah, drawing on that tradition, the positive aspects of that tradition, while also yeah. accounting <laughs> for the negative aspects of that of tradition, course. is yes, is precisely as you said. That's a vital, hopeful path forward. I think. Um, in Appalachia. And you can just see how that sort of tradition um, dovetails with concepts or frameworks like eco-socialist recombining, right, um, along strongly ecological sustainable lines. Um, and again, for me, reading that literature, uh, that was some, some of the first left literature that I was exposed to just made perfect sense to me. I mean, we should be careful in how I say this. In my part of West Virginia and then around my part of West Virginia, um, in addition to the rest of the, the state and, and beyond, like all of central Appalachia, a lot of the land is owned not by West Virginians, but by absentee, uh, completely absentee corporations. Um, but despite that fact, I should say, it's not unusual to nevertheless, still today, treat Appalachian land as if it were the commons uh, and not oh, owned by yeah. anyone in particular, if you see what I'm <laughs> saying. Um, because yeah. in my part of, you know, I grew up, in a town where people, in order to not go hungry um, through the winter, still needed to hunt animals, hunt deer uh, and so forth, right. um, and, and freeze that meat. So they'd have food to eat because they couldn't afford mm -hmm. uh, to buy other food. And um, animals don't care about property boundaries if there's no fences. Up yeah, of course. So there are many places to hunt, I guess I should say. Yeah. One example in, in Appalachia. Um, and again, the app, you know, the, uh, animals like deer aren't necessarily aware of liberal property rights we should say um, so uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I can leave it at that but you can see what yeah, i mean no, 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 of course, the fact of course. That commons uh still yeah. exist in appalachia even if they're not re necessarily referred to as commons by the appalachian people um and so that tradition persists for very i mean material reasons that gotta mm -hmm. you know you need to feed your family through the winter and industry. I mean, there's no coal mining jobs left in Appalachia. And so if whatever wage labor you get is not enough to, to, you know, to, to buy shelter and food, you got to get food somehow. So. Yeah. Yeah. Liberal property laws are not going to help you eat. <laughs> that's that's sure. right. That's exactly. Right. Especially if you're talking about absentee <laughs> unless, corporate Unless owners. you're an absentee corporate owner, then maybe yeah, that's <laughs> right. put some, uh, some extra deer on your table. <laughs> that's exactly right. And, uh, you know, again, these absentee corporate owners, and there's a lot of studies called like who owns the land um, mm -hmm. and, and updated studies. And it's just like massive amounts of West Virginia Central Appalachia are owned by absent, absentee folks. And the, as the name absentee suggests, mm -hmm. it's not like they're coming out here and walking around uh, the forest yeah. of West Virginia to see if who is or who isn't uh, on that yeah. land. So you're not going to go through their garden and have a, an old man with a shotgun be like, who yes. are you? I'm that is exactly my point. <laughs> right. Yep. Um, I, I want to get into this, uh, the more law aspect of, of, uh, of your work. Um, you quite clearly state uh, in your writing that modern environmental law has failed 
right? Uh, I was wondering if maybe you could explain a little bit your vision of environment of what environmental law is, uh, because we've we've talked about environmental justice on the podcast, but I don't think we've properly we have talked about a sakshi as well, but. I think that it would be nice to maybe get a little refresher on, on what at least you see as environmental law and uh, maybe how it's failed in some like examples uh, through Appalachia. Absolutely. And um, the question of what environmental law is and how it's failed, yeah, really is the first half uh, of my book. And then the second half moves more towards potential uh, transformative solutions. So as to what environmental law is, um, Modern environmental law uh, in the U.S. and largely beyond was enacted in the 1960s, 1970s, or the core of uh, modern environmental law, and thereafter refined. But before modern environmental law or environmental law per se, um, obviously there were still environmental disputes, but these were governed uh, largely by the common law or by the courts, right? Mm. Um, and so if you're talking about before modern environmental law, how it failed and how it specifically was changed to support industry, you can talk about things like nuisance and negligence. So when industries like uh, the coal industry and the railroads were causing real harm to um, small landowners, mostly farmers uh, uh, in the US, uh, both in Appalachia and beyond, there's no environmental law, right? In the late 1800s yeah. or um, early 20th century. So instead the only recourse was torts like uh, nuisance uh, or negligence that the small landowners could try and bring against industry, um, right? So that was sort of proto-environmental law as mm -hmm. I refer to it in the book. But um, <laughs> the courts in West Virginia, uh, in Appalachia, um, certainly, and also beyond, explicitly looked at these suits that were bring, being brought by these small um, Appalachian landholders. And they were saying, hey, um, essentially we don't care. Like what we're interested <laughs> in terms of public policy is industrial development. Uh, in Appalachia and beyond, we need your coal, we need your resources. Mm -hmm. So the courts actually say in their decisions, I, you know, I do the close studies of these cases in the book, they say, um, we're going to change or relax doctrines such as nuisance um, and such as negligence in order to make it more difficult um, for these small landholders to bring suit or you know, to, to bring successful suit at all. Because as an overriding public policy, we need to be supporting the railroads and the coal industry and the timber industry. And that's one thing about the classical liberalism era that I find at least a little bit refreshing is that at least the courts and government was being honest. honest. They, <laughs> I mean, if you read the decisions um, sure. I reference in the book, they're just like diabolical. You know, the language reminds me of like a Disney villain. Um, yeah. yeah, we know the railroads, the sparks from the railroads are causing fires on your property and, you know, harming you. Um, we just don't give a shit. Harm. That's exactly what they say. Yeah, they're like, but the you know, we the country relies on the railroads, and to use yeah. railroads, they must use fire. So oh courts use God. that sort of language versus neoliberal government yeah, language, corporate which of social course, responsibility and all these yes, things. Yes, you got it. Not Rats. didn't exist. <laughs> yes, yeah. So once we're in the neoliberal era, you know, much more. Um, mm much more uh, clever and, and wrapping up, you know, how these laws are still um, being changed to support industry, but in the name of uh, free markets and of liberty and, and of all the rest. Mm -hmm. um, so again, there's something refreshing about the, the I mean, they're both evil eras in, in US yeah, governments, yeah, but at least they're honest in their, uh, yeah. <laughs> in their bi diabolical nature in, uh, at that period. So anyway, that's how uh, proto-environmental law um, failed 
uh, and it wasn't a failed like in the passive voice, like it just didn't work. It was specifically changed uh, by the courts to support industry. Then we have modern environmental law, 1960s and 1970s, after the so-called environmental uh, revolution of the 1960s. I call it an environmental awakening. There's no real revolution happened, right? Instead, we just got these uh, environmental statutes that were uh, passed in the U.S. So after the um, you know the, the grassroots environmental awakening, we got National Environmental Policy Act in the U.S. Um, mm-hmm. It's sort of the first landmark environmental statute, and then all the rest, like the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act. And this was um, under Carter. Yeah. Uh, largely, believe it or not, <coughs> under Nixon, which just Nixon was to show you, yeah, how, <laughs> how the Republican <laughs> Party has. Okay. It's hard to yeah. imagine. Uh, uh, well, it's impossible to imagine that you know that mm-hmm. the current. Uh, U.S. Republican Party. Um, right, yeah, the EPA yeah. was also made by Nixon. That's right. That right, 1970. No, yep, so all that. strange. Yes, yep. It just goes to show you uh, how um, you know the the insane uh, uh, path that the oh, not that the Republican Party obviously wasn't already uh, deeply problematic, mm-hmm. but at least it was more uh, engaged, and at least you know the conservative spectrum of the liberal, um, yeah. you know, the, the liberal uh, legal and policy framework in the U.S. But anyway, yeah, so largely 1969 is when NEPA was passed through the 70s, when most of the different sorts of uh, environmental statutes were passed in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, subsequently refined uh, over the decades. Um, international environmental law um, also largely came to being um, around the same time period. So in a nutshell, why hasn't uh, environmental law worked? Why specifically has it failed? Um, two levels of this analysis that I use in the book. One is a technical or operational analysis, specifically as to how environmental law has failed. Two is the critical analysis, uh, again, going to a socialist and Marxist uh, approach to law. Technical or operational analysis as to environmental laws failed, again, is basically that industry and allied lawmakers um, succeeded in thwarting uh, environmental law. So even as it was being constructed, they built in um, mechanisms through which it essentially wouldn't work and would continue to allow industry to um, pollute almost as they always have, although there were some minor corrupt, uh, some minor, minor corrupt uh, corrections in their practices. Mm-hmm. Um, and so more specifically, environmental law was ad hoc and fragmented um, when it was initially enacted that period and thereafter. Um, we often say the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. There's a lot of cooperative federalism schemes with like federal law in the U.S., leaving a lot to the states. And then states like West Virginia essentially don't do anything uh, that they're supposed <laughs> to be doing in terms of enforcement. Um, so it's ad hoc and fragmented. Toxic loopholes that industry again, secured with the help of lawmakers, specifically permitting regimes, as I think we've, we've already talked about. Um, so, you know, key statutes like the Clean Water Act have permitting regimes built into it. And so industries like the coal industry are allowed to continue to blow up mountains and destroy streams, which is, you know, the Clean Water mm-hmm. Act specifically, because they're issued permits that allow them to keep doing it. Um, yeah. So we often call them permit to pollute uh, legal regimes. Um, you know, whole books have been written on that. Toxic loopholes by Collins mm-hmm. is just on um, that sort of phenomenon. So it's like, sure, we'll pass environmental law. However, there's all sorts of mechanisms, specifically um, like permitting regimes, that will allow industry to go on with business as usual. They just have a ticket yeah. that says they can keep doing it. Yeah. Delegation to administrative agencies is another biggie. You know, in the in the U.S., administrative agencies aren't um, 
democratically elected. Um, and so mm -hmm. they're shielded from direct democratic accountability. And they are quickly captured by the very industries that they're supposed to be uh, yeah. regulating through, you know, direct capture through um, things like lobbying, you know, massive capital and expertise directed at agencies like the EPA. And more insidious forms of capture, like folks of the EPA know that they can get jobs in industry which pay much more after they, you know, they leave their agency. Yeah. Um, and so they cozy so up on the revolving doors, the revolving door. You yeah. got it. Yeah. Um, state, yeah. state and federal. So that's all the technical or operational mm -hmm. or some examples. I mean, inter, yeah. of course, in international environmental law, non-binding. Yeah. That's an obvious of uh, course. technical problem. And, and more precisely on the judges kind of on the courts part, um, I'd read in your, in your writing that the state judges didn't have to be appointed. They were elected. And That's there was right. kind of a problem around uh, campaign funding as well. That's right. Yeah. So in Appalachian states uh, like West Virginia, like Virginia, um, yeah, massive coal contributions um, to, to the judiciary campaigns. And still then, you know, once they're successful and, and uh have your judge seat, um, including at like the, you know, the state Supreme Court level, then you're, um, you know, essentially beholden uh, to, to yeah. the coal industry. If you weren't already to begin with for ideological reasons or material reasons, since again, it's the only industry here. So yeah, there's, I mean, there's a Supreme yeah. Court case about a judge you had to recuse, you should have recused himself in a coal issue since that okay. specific coal industry in the litigation, uh, you know, funded the whole campaign. Um, and those are the states, but the federal level, that's another good point. Um, again, Appalachia is the case model for the failure of environmental law, because even though you had all these legal structures that would allow you to continue to pollute when you're engaging in coal mining practices, to, to, to engage in even more uh, efficient uh, operations on the part of the coal industry, um, you know, they tried to do as few of the actual legal procedures as they could. They're essentially breaking environmental law um, in order to, to make yet more uh, to make yet more money. And, you know, so when folks would bring suit um, against agencies who were looking the other way since they were captured and saying, hey, agencies, you're supposed to be regulating these co this coal yeah. industry and you're not. And they're breaking uh, federal environmental law. I mean, there are famous cases where the federal uh, courts and the Fourth Circuit and the Sixth Circuit. Sixth Circuit uh, in, the, in the federal Appalachian uh, region um, essentially said, nope, it's fine, you know, that the agencies aren't uh, following environmental law for various reasons, right? They would say things okay. like, oh, the legislative history arguments are this, or public policy arguments are that. Oh, um, but like okay. on, their, on their face, um, the agencies weren't enforcing black letter environmental law and so the decisions to this day are just shocking uh, and made mm -hmm. national news and, again, are covered in all the um, legal left environmental literature because yeah. it's a failure, again, of not just the legislature for kicking the can over to the administrative agencies, but also the judiciary for not for you know, checks and balances, for not forcing the agencies to enforce mm -hmm. uh, environmental law. So and again, the, the whole thing is the just lie of the checks and balances. Like you said, it's yes, yeah. the complete okay. failure all the way down. They didn't even need to break the environment. I mean, they were already getting their <laughs> permits and they were making, you know, massive profits. But again, mm. you know, the whole point are of there outlier is cases that we can learn from, like outliers in terms of uh, specific cases where these kind of trends were reversed? So, um, 
I would say no. The trends <sighs> haven't really been worse <laughs> in Appalachia. I was hoping we got a little bit of a hope. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, that's no. I mean, honestly, that's a really good question. For instance, the, you know, the Obama administration um, appointed more centrist judges, and so some of the decisions mm-hmm. were a little bit better. Um, but I mean, part of part of what's happened too, again, you know, using that material analysis, is all things being equal, there are fewer mountaintop removal mining sites that are still active. Um, mm. And so to the extent that federal litigation is now being brought, it's less against uh, coal mining uh, industries or companies and more against um, natural gas type industries, right? right so, yeah. the, the, so it's less that, sure, there are fewer problematic cases in that way, all things being equal in the coal industry context, but it's not for a good reason. <laughs> it's because yeah, yeah, the yeah, industry yeah. hasn't, not for a good governance reasons, more yeah. for the material changes in the I was, I was wondering how what your uh, kind of balance sheets um view is of of the uh obama trump and biden administration like is there has has there been clear trends within each administration have they kind of followed each other or disrupted uh things after their predecessor i, I would say there's generally been a through line of um of a disaster in terms of environmental law mm-hmm. and governance i mean you know the the u.s media will often say oh there were great changes brought about by the obama administration and the biden administration for instance started off relatively strong in terms of its climate agenda which by the way it's completely abandoned after you know yeah. the war in uh the war in ukraine i'm sure you've seen the news that they've for um, for ridiculous you, reasons that yes. apparently biden but like building biden building <laughs> I had a hard time saying that mm-hmm. biden building new oil or gas plants will yep. somehow which come online in like five years will somehow help ukrainians now it's exactly so it, it's absurd um so i think that's actually a good example of how really the through line has been um mm-hmm. neoliberal environmental governance um that has continued to um essentially be be um wholly ineffective in terms of actually combating the all the different aspects of the mm-hmm. ecological crisis uh, in, in the U.S. and beyond. Small incremental changes. Sure, Trump, again, sure, Trump was, you know, made the news that all the environmental um, statutes and regulations that, that he rolled back. Um, but I think there's many more similarities. But, the, but, but I guess you could say there's not those ones that he rolled back weren't even properly being followed, as you explained. So it's... That's right. And, and again, they were at the technical or operational level, um, they weren't all that effective if, mm-hmm. if they're being effective at all uh, to begin with all, you know, from from the, the critical legal perspective, all smoke and mirrors, all, um, mm-hmm. you know, now that these rules have been formalized and, you know, we have uh, important agencies and environmental statutes on the book, things are going in the right direction in very small uh, ways they were but on the macro scale, but, you know, Obviously, the ecological crisis has only worsened, um, you know, in the, in the half century since environmental law has been enacted. So that's all technical or operational. And then, of course, the critical analysis goes to the central fact that um, environmental law is um, was never designed to challenge or even limit uh, liberal capitalism. Right? It was yeah. always designed to um, to support. Uh, liberal capitalism and to operate within the liberal capitalist paradigm. And for all the reasons that we know, mm-hmm. uh, liberal capitalism is ecologically unsustainable, right? It is yeah. based on ceaseless capital accumulation through both subordination of uh, labor, but also nature. Mm-hmm. It is also has a functional requirement for um, perpetual economic growth. So if environmental law is wholly conceived of within that system and doesn't challenge that yeah. system, um, again, it's more f- 
formal rules that seem helpful, but that really aren't doing much to challenge the actual paradigm that, that mm-hmm. is most responsible for, um, or pr- almost entirely responsible for all aspects of a, of a global ecological crisis, and not just the extraction-based harms that we see in uh, Appalachia. Although it really is easy to tie Appalachia to the broader global ecological crisis, since it is the coal that's been burned, um, that's been extracted from Appalachia for the last century and a half, that's been a, a major contributor to, to climate change, right? So one way to connect the local or regional to, to the global is, is through that, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I wanna move on a little bit to, <clears throat> slightly away maybe a little bit more from the uh, problems uh, and more towards the kind of resistance and solutions. Um, but, uh, you know, we did say the, the C word of capitalism. So I, <laughs> I do have to very quickly just ask you, because it's quite refreshing to see, you know, uh, increasingly kind of legal scholars uh, and, and lawyers, I don't know if you would call it, no, I guess just legal scholar, um, you know, talk about and criticize uh, the capitalist system. And yeah, I was wondering how much, because you can't point to it as being the root cause kind of of, of this issue. I was wondering um, what kind of, what kind of solutions then you see, like it, you know, environmental law has failed, you say, and, and capitalism has been the, or definitely a big part of the problem. And I was wondering from your kind of scholarly kind of point of view, what you see as being uh, the alternative to this kind of system? Right, such a good question. Um, and I couldn't agree more that it, I'm biased, uh, that it is refreshing <laughs> to see more openly left legal scholarship, especially in the US. Um, and the US Legal Academy is not a hotbed for radical and leftist thought, as you might imagine. Law and economics, yeah. I think, remains the dominant through line explicitly and, and implicitly. And scholarship and um, much even environmental legal scholarship in the U.S. is more liberal, progressive to a certain extent, but not, uh, but not radical. Not going to a critique mm-hmm. of, of capitalism. Although, again, there are there's been a reemergence, especially among you know younger uh, cohort of, um, of scholars. You probably heard of the law and political economy resurgence. Um, in the U.S., which isn't explicitly Marxian, um, but I think certainly is very often to the left uh, of progressive thought and um, draws at least implicitly on uh, a lot of uh, Marxian critiques. Um, so you are seeing a trend of uh, younger folks, mostly you know, millennials and, uh, and below, <laughs> who are directly, again, engaging with uh, Marxist and, and socialist thought. How I arrived at it, I mean, really is some of the core um, mark. How I, my, specifically how I arrive at my uh, mm-hmm. proposals I discuss in the book, I mean, really is a, a direct uh, through line from some of the foundation foundational Marxian analysis of mal- analyses of long capitalism, going back to economic base and you know political and legal superstructure, right? Um, economic base being the true foundation of society, legal and uh, political superstructure largely. Uh, just being created to support mm-hmm. that economic base, which in our case is, you know, liberal capitalism. And so, and again, you know, base and superstructure, obviously there's much more to it. Uh, you, yeah, you know, yeah. Twitter is always giving it a hard time with uh, vulgar <laughs> Marxism, I think, you know, as it's called, yeah. but I don't know. I feel like any um, 
critical legal scholar who's drawing on the socialist and Marxian tradition still will point to that as a really important foundational analysis that just involves a lot of caveats as to it not being a um, hard line between the two or a true dichotomy. Of They're course, yeah. Interactive it's a, yeah, it's a conceptual yeah. model that helps yes. us. Uh, That's it's right. not it's not the be all end all for sure exactly yeah I, again i appreciate all the twitter the twitter jokes about itself <laughs> but anyway what that practically means for uh critical legal scholars who are influenced by the socialist and marxist tradition is it's not law reform alone from within the liberal capitalist system right supportive uh, environmental law that's going to get us to a strongly uh, ecological least sustainable future and you know more emancipatory and just future i mean it's literally impossible to achieve any sort of needed transformative change within the law and the us and within you know the international legal system as well as both of those legal structures are um again supportive of ecologically unsustainable not just uh, liberal capitalism this doesn't mean that as i discuss in the book that we should abandon the law as a site for um uh, for pursuing, you know, transformative change. It's just, you know, you really need to think long and hard about it. And of course, not just as individuals, but in conjunction with uh, activist um, uh, social movements and, and so forth, you really need to think about how you can um, reconceive of certain legal approaches as directly trying to get you towards uh, a transformative future, right? That's where concepts like non-reformist reforms, I think are um, extremely important. So it's not any sort of law reform that's important in and of itself as a way to, you know, again, be a course correction within the system. It's explicitly designing uh, a type of law reform or um, legal measure to you know, not correct the system, but to ultimately um, help you uh, transform or change the system. Um, so non-reformist reforms, I think, is definitely a helpful way to think about you know legal type uh, solutions getting towards more transformative change. Eco-socialism, eco-feminism, as I discussed in the book. Um, and um, beyond that, just recognizing that any legal measures, even radically conceived uh, legal measures like non-reformist reforms are never gonna be sufficient in and of themselves. You have to be talking about other sorts of radical social and and, and economic change. Um, And another great thing about concepts like non-reformist reforms is that they're designed to help build people power, right? And mobilize the broad citizenry Mm -hmm. to specifically work towards transformative change. And again, uh, not not pursue a specific um, policy, policy fix. Um, so yeah, again, and that's really the whole second half of the book, right? Where I'm describing the sorts of, uh, transformative change that it seems to me and, and many others, um, would be, yeah. uh, again, more just and strongly ecological. Because do you think there's potential to co-opt kind of these, well, not co-opt, but I guess, transform these institutions to kind of act as enablers rather than blockers or hindrances to these kind of, you know, ecological revolution kind of that we need? Because, you know, when I look at really any country, let's say even just Norway here, uh, if let's say uh, some friends and I are planning some kind of action that would be like some kind of direct action mm-hmm. of any kind um, for legal reasons, not that we are, but if, uh, you know, uh, we would very easily see ourselves be not only arrested, but also fined with about almost $2,000 of wow. fine for just a single instance of direct action or protest or like road blocking or something like that. Um, and, you know, I could potentially, I think, also lose 
out on my master's degree here could right. potentially you risk being banned from the country if you're not actually from it so there's a lot of these like ways in which the law has kind of for a lot of activists and for a lot of you know people who don't like to call themselves activists but who are acting on behalf of of this ecological uh, crisis uh, or fixing this ecological crisis i think that a lot of people see the law now as something that hinders uh, that change but i guess i kind of wonder how you see it as something that could instead enable us to actually like become an ally rather than an enemy in a way. Yeah, that's such a great question. Such a great point. Um, and I mean, I think that's, um, I think that's absolutely correct. All things being equal, uh, the law is generally being wielded against emancipatory movements and social movements, right. That are hoping to um, challenge or overcome the system. So all things being equal, the existing legal structure um, is an, not in all instances, but in most instances, I think, um, being wielded against uh, emancipatory movements. And it's something that you have to overcome um, and you know, directly combat through different sorts of uh, mechanisms. Um, but I, right, so it's an uphill battle and sort of the, the legal system is rigged or being wielded uh, against uh, folks who are interested in transformative change. That being said, it still can be, I think, a terrain of uh, struggle and a useful uh, terrain of struggle. Um, it's just the tactics and strategies that you're using in these different uh, venues or contexts. Um, so interesting to hear about in Norway context as of, of, because in you know the U.S. and the Appalachian context, it's the it's the same thing. Um, we could we could try to continue to pursue uh, legal reform alone through federal litigation, through um, policy reform or legislative reform at different levels. You also have things like constitutionally protected uh, protest uh, that you could try to do. Although even constitutionally protected protests, as we saw at the Black Lives Matter uprising, is met with yeah. violence from the state. Yeah. And then also in Appalachia, um, and so it's something I discuss a lot in the book, we do have a direct action and civil disobedience um, tradition going back to the Mime Wars, yeah. actually the early 20th centuries, um, and uh, contemporary direct action and civil disobedience as well. Uh, you know, protesters, activists chaining themselves to natural gas infrastructure, pipelines, and so forth, occupying mountaintop removal mining sites illegally, and so forth. Um, and, you know, you can engage in all of those uh, terrains, or they're all valid um, sites through which you could try to use the laws part and parcel of your struggle. It's just an uphill battle. You're very often yeah. <laughs> uh, not going to win, right? I mean, like, there's different litigation tactics you can also use um, uh, to, um, for instance, um, work with civil disobedience once they've been arrested, right? There's different sort mm -hmm. of tactics that civil disobedience lawyers yeah. um, have, uh, have deployed. So um, I think it's just how you have to think about all of those sites for change and the legal impacts on them. Mm -hmm. um, and again, what you're ultimately trying to do. And I think one of my critiques or the phenomenon that I discuss in the book is uh, very often, whether it's legal action of various forms, socially um, or a constitutionally protected uh, protest or direct action or civil disobedience, very often in Appalachia, the ultimate end goal hasn't been trans transformative change. It's been uh, more limited to stop a specific uh, action or you know, project mm -hmm. from happening. 
Um, and so if you're not in a non-reformist reform sense, tr trying to tie any of those uh, legal or social str struggles that have legal implications to more transformative change. Um, and ultimately, if we need something like yeah. transformative change for an ecologically sustainable future, um, then I think it might involve rethinking through the ultimate end goals and how that might intersect um, mm -hmm. with the, the legal implications as well. And it's so interesting that you brought up fines. Um, there has been a number of state statutes that have been passed that have reclassified ecological specific civil nonviolent really? civil disobedience as traditionally conceived, like locking yourself oh, to a pipeline yeah. as terrorism. Um, oh, okay. I thought you were yes. going to go the other. No, no, no. Yeah. So they're again an example of wielding the law. <laughs> I was, That's I was right. Expecting yeah. you to say, "Oh, protected as like perfectly fine," but nope, nope, nope. Terrorism. The other way. That's right. So again, <laughs> changing and wielding the law yeah. specifically to hinder, in this yeah. instance, you know, direct action. So I mean, yeah. Speeches. As soon as you target national uh, security or yes. or like. Uh, infrastructure that's of like cru crucial importance to the state then yeah you have to expect uh that to at some point become kind of terrorized in the sense of you become uh you kind of put yourself as an enemy of the state i think as yep. soon but, as you target but, that but as a terrain of struggle even if that's how the the state um responds and, and the state as allied with industry obviously mm -hmm. then it's well if that's what's going to happen you know what sort of rhetoric should we adopt to account for that fact? And, you know, some folks have nevertheless continued to be willing to risk uh, imprisonment and all the rest. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's using those, you know, dire um, implications to show nevertheless, people are willing to do this, right? And mm -hmm. why would you risk um, these, you know, a terrorist charge and, um, and uh, ma you know, massive jail times because of, you know, the impending uh, ecological collapse, right? Yeah. So that's what I mean by sort of um, the rhetoric and thinking through yeah. the secondary and tertiary effects of all of these different terrains of struggle that have legal intersections. Mm -hmm. And then again, from my standpoint um, of the ecological legal left and thinking about uh, lawyers and activists being interested again in more transformative change. It's just different types of traditional lawyering. Uh, radical cause lawyering is an example that I discuss in the book or radical community lawyering. Mm. And it's not, you know, lawyers as individual liberal social change agents, but ultimately being um, serving in a supportive role to social movements and to mm. activist movements. Um, who are interested in more transformative change and not as sort of like a traditional liberal legal champion, right? Yeah. So it's a different way of lawyering, uh, non-hierarchical, mm -hmm. transformative-minded, supportive. And um, it's huge right now in the, in the, in the legal yeah. left community across not just you know, litigation, but also uh, transactional um, radical lawyers who, for instance, you're not interested in helping to form a traditional cooperative but rather trying to form a more radical multi-stakeholder cooperative and not just like mm -hmm. a consumer-owned cooperative with a radical intent embedded within it, again, sort of like a non-reformist reform to not just serve as a multi-stakeholder cooperative, but to have transformative change beyond the cooperative form, the community built into it, right, through political education and other campaigns as well. So mm -hmm. different lawyers from litigators to transactional yeah, yeah. attorneys can go about the idea of being you know, legal scholar, uh, praxis in terms of, you know, what, what you're specifically doing to sort of support these different, all these different sites of legal, uh, of all these different sites of, of social struggle that all have legal implications, direct or indirect. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, you know, when I think about it, I'd like to think that one of the best things that we could have in terms of uh, the kind of people power would be to 
take out those barriers to direct action to protests like mm -hmm. fines for example um but you know i don't know maybe that's just a a wild dream to, <laughs> to think that one day we could do this kind of thing without fear of being fined um <clears throat> but no but i but think I, I agree. it's really I, interesting I, yeah, yeah. I agree, obviously. Yeah. I mean, to the extent yeah. that we could uh, knock down or combat those efforts, um, you know, the eco-terrorism is something that we haven't seen since the early days of, uh, of uh, you know, the 9-11 uh, crackdown, right? Mm -hmm. And so that was, eco-terrorism was big then, then it went into advance. And now that's, you know, in Appalachia and other places, um, you know, indigenous resistance to the, the pipelines out west, um, that you've seen um, a resurgence of, of eco-terrorism. It's being branded as, yeah, yeah. Yes, and so I agree with you completely. To the extent that we can combat that, I think also would be um, yeah. beneficial. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I don't want to take too much more of your time, but I did want to ask maybe like a last question around the actual resistance movement in Appalachia. And <laughs> I know this is like a big kind of part to condense in, in the... And, you know, what's, I guess, going to be just a, a few minutes, but um, if you don't mind, could you just tell us a little bit about this resistance movement that you see sprung up out of Appalachia and, and maybe some of the kind of struggles and victories or defeats as well, I guess. Um, and I, I always kind of try and look for what we can learn at large from specific contexts, you know, because obviously every geographic, cultural, and especially timely like historical context has its own specificities which often aren't replicated elsewhere but my question i guess is what can the world at large learn from struggle in appalachia great question um i can maybe take that question uh with a quick multi-part answer <laughs> um so the first part is like sort of the purpose of the book um is advocating for certain new directions within the Appalachian social change landscape. Um, so, to, so, so to a certain extent, somewhat different than what we've seen in a lot of um, the social movements and activism, but also at the same time, emphasizing that already that what I'm suggesting in terms of uh, eco-socialism, eco-feminism and related discourse and movements is already emerging in Appalachia. Um, through newer and smaller uh, social movements, activists uh, interested in this sort of change. Um, so, right, so again, it's not just like my proposals in a vacuum, it's more of what I am starting to see and have started to see, especially in the last uh, decade in terms of, um, you know, specific groups that have, have formed and just the trends uh, within activists uh, and scholars and so forth. Um, but, but two, I do think the larger um, uh, activist communities and um, uh, social movements um, could, would likely benefit, right, from, from tapping more mm -hmm. into these, um, into these, you know, essentially more radical uh, discourses and, and, and activist veins. And I should just say before I let me answer your question, um, which no, is no, what we're seeing in Appalachia and what can the world benefit from it. I it. haven't mentioned mm -hmm. it yet, but specifically, uh, what I do think that we need for again, both an ecologically sustainable and more just future is strains of eco-socialism, strains of eco-feminism. Mm -hmm. By eco-socialism, I do mean, you know, a full post-capitalist uh, eco-socialism, mm -hmm. not like a Keynesian does, liberal. Does this eco-socialism though, maybe not go against, because what I know of eco-socialism uh, has been very, 
like while it's been anti-capitalism, anti-capitalist has also been quite expansionary or industrial in its in its design, rather than like focused on, you know, post-development or degrowth or like it seems like a lot of eco-socialists today seem still kind of stuck on this um, consumerist kind of uh, like non-capitalist yeah. but consumerist kind of thing. Yeah, I, I do think that there still are some strains of eco-socialism that are marked by eco-modernism, right? Mm -hmm. um, is yeah. essentially what you're suggesting. So in the book, um, I argue for an eco-socialism that is influenced more by degrowth and specifically okay. by yeah. yep, a post-capitalist uh, uh, form of degrowth. Okay. Eco-dego-socialism. <laughs> That's right. Um, and I think, you know, I would go even so far as to say that most mo mainstream um, eco-socialists who are interested in a post-capitalist eco-socialist future mm -hmm. tend to be much more allied with um, a post-capitalist degrowth than with mm -hmm. the uh, eco-modernist folks these yeah. days. I, I, I guess I, I just unfortunately read uh, a little bit of Lee Phillips. Uh, uh, yeah. Is that... <laughs> I, I Ooh, think who's... more of an outlier. Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> and more, uh, you know, People's Green New Deal, the Red New Deal, yeah. right? Those okay. sorts of not degrowth eco-socialist uh, type scholars, books, movements, um, but, you know, they even, mm -hmm. those sorts of works and mine, you know, remaking App Appalachia explain that the sort of eco-socialism that um that i advocate for uh is most allied or directly allied with um the, the post-capitalist uh mm -hmm. degrowth or she's specifically arguing for degrowth in the north right with uh emancipatory uh growth exactly the global south uh, and all the rest um right and so then beyond that just all the tenets of, of eco-socialism production for uh for um use value um you mm -hmm. know democratic economic planning local to global scales uh, democratic control um collective um forms of uh, of ownership of the means of production um recommoning as an important precept then as entwined with an eco-socialist materialist eco-feminism so centering in the ethic of care um, focusing on the fact that it is, you know, um, women uh, who've largely uh, led environmental uh, justice movements in Appalachia um, and, you know, uh, globally in the mm -hmm. South and so forth. So those are the sorts of, um, of activist movements, um, you know, scholarly veins I'm arguing for in the book that I think um, might best serve uh, Appalachian um, social movements to think more about. But again, it's emerging um, among a number yeah. of um, Appalachian organizations and groups. So, and so to answer your real question, <laughs> so in terms of what we've seen on the ground in Appalachia historically and today, I mean, there's at least two major uh, veins of, um, of uh, social um, activism um, that are that have been highly visible um, and uh, effective in many ways. One's the labor movement, which again goes back to the the Cold Wars of the early 20th century. It's morphed today, obviously, of, of, as formal unions have been uh, decimated in uh, Appalachia and beyond um, to different forms of uh, labor activism. The teacher strikes that happened in um, in the sure. U.S. Uh, a few years ago started in, in West Virginia, actually, with West oh, Virginia wow. teachers okay. uh, who were the first to to engage in the strikes and then went across the country. Um, so we still have a continued uh, labored movement that's sort of morphing in a very difficult neoliberal landscape that's been hostile and decimated mm. like the traditional coal unions. And then the environmental justice movement, which has been um, very robust in Appalachia since the 1960s and 1970s um, against uh, strip mining 
uh, originally, and then against mountaintop removal mining in the 1990s onwards, and then against the natural gas industry in the last decade. Again, and we've seen the full range of actions, legal actions in their various forms, uh, protests and civil disobedience, um, and the environmental justice and uh, um, different forms of the, the labor movement as well. Um, I think one of the great things about Appalachian activism as it currently exists is the uh, intertwinement of labor and of the environmental justice movements. Very often they were um, mm. in conflict in prior decades, right, with the labor yeah. folks with coal, um, often wanting to support. And, the and they, still oft, they still often are in those yes. places, right? Yeah. Yep, yep, and, and they still often are in conflict, absolutely. But you've seen more uh, intertwinements of the two um, emerge in, uh, in Appalachia in recent decades. I think it's happening more and more. It's often the stated goals of, at this point, Appalachian, mm -hmm. um, at least organizations, um, obviously it can be tougher with, with, uh, with formal, for, formal unions in different contexts. Um, so I, I think the intertwinement of, of labor with environmental justice activism has been a positive uh, phenomenon that's occurred in one of the hardest places in the country, I think, to make it happen. I think it's, it's um, you're sort of alluding to um, that I think it'd be beneficial to, to learn from elsewhere. I also think um, the, the other, the, to conclude, um, the other positive phenomenon that we're seeing in Appalachia is more and more linking our local and regional struggles with international uh, struggles. Because mm -hmm. um, again, you know, the, uh, the environmental justice um, or I should say the anti-strip mining movement, right, which is sort of a proto-environmental movement, emerged in the 1960s and 1970s. It's often very discreet, aimed at specific harms, like the harm being caused by uh, coal extraction. Um, but more and more in the last few decades, specifically in the last decade, um, really a uh, conscious effort to uh, sort of scale up um, the, the activism uh, that's being pursued here at the, at the broader national and international level. There's a great book called um, After Coal that came out a few years ago that's studying intertwined activism in Wales, actually, in Appalachia, oh, okay. um, which has occurred, yeah. and talking about the benefits of coordinating uh, local and regional struggles, like in Appalachia, with, with other places um, mm -hmm. that, have, that have faced similar issues. And of course, with, with uh, issues that are global, specifically global in nature, like climate change. So I think the extent to which Appalachian social movements have been successful in doing both of those things in a very, for the U.S., difficult um, landscape for social change, right? Since, you know, it's difficult to be a, yeah. uh, an activist in Appalachia, you know, it, it's, as compared to, you know, the, the Bay Area or something, um, <laughs> I think is, is really noteworthy uh, is often talked about as a success. And I think that's the key to the future. There, as I say in the book, there's no post-capitalist Appalachia by itself, right? Uh, mm -hmm. No socialism in one country, no socialism in one region. The, the future yeah. has to be intertwining uh, Appalachia struggles uh, nationally and internationally. I think we've, Appalachian activists, um, organizers have done a phenomenal job in, in working on that. And I think that could be of benefit to um, other uh, localities and, and regions. Yeah. Yeah. All right. On that fantastic note, thank you so much, Nicholas Stump, for coming on the show. Um, I'm sorry again that it's just me and you didn't get to, to meet the wonderful, our, our wonderful Jamie, but uh, maybe, you know, once uh i don't know once we read up more on mining and on on you know if i don't know if you plan to release any more works you're welcome to come on the show again but thank you already for the research you've done for coming on the show for making it you know quite easy to understand and, and grasp these complex uh ideas and concepts and uh yeah thank you so much
Ah, it was, it was a lot of fun. I was thrilled to be here. And yeah, hope to uh, hope to return uh, down the line. I'm, and I also missed uh, uh, meeting Jamie today, but yeah, <laughs> hope down the line. Yeah. 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 We're actually, yeah, we're thinking about doing some kind of event and I kind of wanted to tease it. So maybe I'll tease it in this episode uh, very uh, uh, kind of um, clunkily, but we are trying to potentially work on something to bring back some let's say bring back past guests all together at once <laughs> i'll give give everybody a little tease so so yeah we'll definitely uh keep in contact um and yeah is there anything that you'd like to plug i mean where people can reach you um if they have any kind of questions about things that you said during the episode or where they can find your book as well um Sure. Yeah. If they, again, want to reach me in my individual capacity, um, my, my Gmail, which is also on my uh, personal website, is just nicholas.stump, S-T-U-M-P, at Gmail. And um, yeah, if you just Google uh, the name of the book, uh, Remaking Appalachia, Eco-Socialism, Eco-Feminism, and Law, that'll bring you to my personal website and you'll see my um, book links there if you're interested mm-hmm. in getting it. Although, also feel free to check it out from a local library um, yeah talking about yeah, the commons sure. um so yeah. uh, you can also check to see uh it might be uh i hope it has a bit of i haven't actually looked to see what libraries have, have purchased it might be a bit of a uh of a uh of a european presence to it um but in any event yeah, yeah. You just google the name of my book you'll see my personal website and there's links well, uh, i'm going to the library it. actually after this so I'll, I'll ask for your book after oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> let's yeah. see Let's yeah. see, I'll let you know if it's there in the Oslo Municipal One. If it's not, I'll ask them to have to have a look for it. <laughs> I'll, well, I'll donate a book too. So let me know. Oh, I can always, awesome. uh, I can always uh, mail one. Uh, there you go. Awesome. International we, Solidarity. We'd yeah, love to yeah, see it. Yeah, which would be cool. There we go. Yeah, um, <laughs> it will be cool. Um, but yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I can spend it all-